Let's open our Bibles to the very beginning. Act 1 of God's drama. Genesis chapter 2. Now we know from reading the rest of the scriptures that some glorious things took place before Genesis chapter 1. Because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 bear out God's plan for sin to enter into the world and death by sin, but also for there to be the promise of eternal life given through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Some don't understand that, but if they don't understand that, then they are left totally confused if they don't believe that sin was in God's plan. But thankfully, there was also a plan for a Savior. All of the universe is a stage for a drama. And the drama is God revealing Himself over time and then into eternity for His own glory and honor forever and ever and ever. Creatures have been given existence without being consulted, without approving God's decision. And the destination of those creatures was determined justly and fairly for them. This is true of the angels. This is true of mankind. And it's true of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fishes of the sea. A great drama for the glory of God. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. The Lord hath created all things for His own pleasure. And for His pleasure they are and were created. When we come into Genesis and we look at the first act that's recorded for us in the Bible in the order that God wanted us to have it, We find the creation of the heavens and the earth in six days in chapter 1. When we come to chapter 2, we find some of those events summarized and a few added details. And I read to you verses 7 through 10 about the God who is able to give life. He said in Deuteronomy 32 that I read to you a few minutes ago, I kill and I make alive. I read to you Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. If you were to go on reading, you would find out the names of those four rivers, and a couple of them were able to trace to this day and know that the Garden of Eden was in what was once called Mesopotamia and and was in what is now called Iraq. The east, eastward from the Israelites. Remember, Moses wrote this. And so eastward is, from their perspective, Persia and Iraq and Iran were eastward from Israel. But that's not my point. My point is that God gave man life. And so we have life. God has breathed into our parents, their nostrils, the breath of life. Men, they became living souls. And then they, by God's reproductive blessing on parents, bring us to pass. And we have breath in our nostrils. The Bible tells us that our life is so fragile that if we have our nostrils pinched off, our life ends. That shows how frail we are. We can pinch off a life and it ceases just by closing our nostrils because... We need breath. We need oxygen in order to live. The point I want in Genesis 2 about Act 1, as far as man is concerned, is that Genesis 2, 8, 
and 9 tell us that God made a garden and He had a tree of life in it. And if we were to read a little further, we would find out that eating the fruit off that tree meant that you could live forever. A tree of eternal life. They have sought for the fountain of life. They have sought for the nutrients of life. They have sought for the medical procedures for life. I read something absurd yesterday. A person that is very fit at the age of 75 saying, I'm going to live to 120. Why don't you come with me? I can promise you something about this 75-year-old person. Looking at them, though they were the most fit 75-year-old person on earth maybe, they were ugly. Give me an out-of-shape 15-year-old, an in-shape 75-year-old is messed up in comparison. And they are not going to live to be 120. You say, well, I read this past week that there's a man in North Dakota that's 119 years old. Yes, and exceptions don't make rules. Exceptions prove that my point is true. He's not going to live to 120. And any time you read a nutritionist or anyone else that thinks that they can add to man's life expectancy, that man can live to be 100 or 120, fundamentally and foundationally, they are totally wrong. Because the Bible does not give that pleasure or privilege. The Bible says 70 years and maybe 80 if by reason of strength. You say, well, I once knew a person that lived beyond 80. Again, they are an exception. Go look at the life expectancy tables of the insurance companies of this country who hire the most expert actuarials and employ the best computers they can get to find out the average life expectancy and expected life of every person. If you're 65 or if you're 25, you can go put your life, your age into that table and find out on average how long you're going to live. And it's amazing that it's still 74 years old. Let me get off that subject because I want to talk about the tree of life. There was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And if you ate the fruit of that tree, you could live forever. It was a symbol of eternal life. But our first parents sinned, and they sinned grievously. God told them that they would surely die if they ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nowhere does it say they couldn't eat the fruit off the tree of life. In fact, it says they could eat the fruit of the tree of life before they had sinned. Let us come to verse 15 of the same chapter of Genesis 2 and continue reading Act 1. Genesis 2.15, And the Lord God took the man... And put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God promised death and he offered life. We had our chance to have eternal life. We would have stayed away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we would have ate from the tree of life. Our first parents, by the influence of the devil, all under the sovereign arrangement of a sovereign God, ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and condemned themselves and us to death. Once we had sinned, And Adam and Eve knew it. They were immediately, they immediately knew they were naked. They immediately wanted to hide themselves from God. They immediately wanted to cover the shame of their nakedness by their own human efforts. They immediately resisted God when He came looking for them. They immediately began blaming others for their sins when God confronted them. All of that shows the sin nature that they got in the very day that they ate thereof. They had died spiritually toward God, and 930 years later, Adam died physically. But long before that, even Abel had died at the cruel hands of Cain, his older brother. Death was in the world, and death has reigned ever since. Death is a king. And we're going to read in a minute what kind of a king it is. But death is king. Death has reigned. It rained from Adam to Moses, even over those that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, according to Romans 5.14. But there was death in the world because they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now we come into this world with 
breath and life in our nostrils, but we come into this world to die because of our first parents. But let's come to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and let's read what God had to do. I'm going to read verses 23 and 24 so that you don't get confused and distracted by the irony in verse 22. And I hope that I didn't say too much by saying that. Let's go to verses 23 and 24. God has listened to Adam, blame Eve. God has listened to Eve, blame the devil. And God has had a few choice things to say to the devil. And he's cursed all three of them. But then we read this. Genesis 3.23, Therefore the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And why did he do that? Because he did not want Adam and Eve to get their hands on the fruit of the tree of life. Because verse 22 in the latter part of it says, And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He drove them out and put cherubims at the east entrance to the Garden of Eden. There was God cutting off eternal life from us. There was God cutting off because we failed when we had a simpler plan of eternal life in place. And that simpler plan was to keep God's commandments and not eat of one tree, but eat of the rest of the trees. We chose when it was the simplest design plan of salvation possible to sin against our Maker. And so God cut it off. He had to come up with a simpler plan. And He did, because it's it's hinted at in verse 15 of this same chapter. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The Lord God speaks to the devil. And the serpent, verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There is the prophecy and promise of a male seed that was coming that would bruise the head of the devil, which is a fatal wound, and the devil would only cause him a minor inconvenience to his heel. This is a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ that came by the woman, He was the seed of the woman because there was no earthly father involved in his conception. It was only of Mary. God was his father. And there we have the fact that we had the tree of life. Eternal life was here on this planet in the tree of life. And God put up flaming cherubim to keep the way of the tree of life so that our first parents, Adam and Eve, could not get their hands on it and partake of that fruit and live forever. The symbol of eternal life. But brethren, turn your Bibles now to the last act. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. For the sake of my illustration, let's consider 66 acts in this drama, though there are others, because it tells us about them in some of the interior books. But let's come over to Revelation chapter 2 and see what the Bible has to tell us about what has transpired in between Genesis and Revelation. Something great has happened in between Genesis and Revelation. It was hinted at in the 15th verse. But then there are many descriptive chapters about it in between. But follow me. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, after having addressed the first church at Ephesus, He that hath an ear, let him hear, What the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has restored our privilege to the tree of life, which is in the midst of a new paradise of God. It's not Eden on earth. It's heaven above. It's the new Jerusalem. And in that new Jerusalem, there is a tree called the tree of life. And it is a symbol to us of eternal life. And who gets to partake of that fruit? Those that overcome. The overcomers are those that endure tribulation. The overcomers are those that keep God's commandments. We don't earn our right to the tree of life. But those that overcome are encouraged by the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall have a right to the tree of life. 
The tree of life is secured by the grace of God through Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us. But we can lay hold of it by being overcomers. That's chapter 2. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Some great privilege has been restored by the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. There were flaming cherubims to keep the way of the tree of life. Now the flaming cherubims are worshiping God and the Lamb in heaven. They're the four beasts. They say amen. And they're fellow worshipers along with the saints. Look at the last chapter of the Bible. What a delightful book in which we can go to the second chapter and then go to the last chapter out of 1,189 chapters and we can read about this same tree. Revelation chapter 22. And let's start at verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Praise the God of heaven, that in this new Jerusalem, in heaven above, there is a crystal fountain of water flowing out of the throne of God, And there is a tree in the midst of the street, the tree of life. And in case you're fearful that you might not get there, in the month where it's bearing fruit, it bears fruit every month. It bears 12 fruits. It's fruit every month. It has fruit there for life. And it has leaves for the healing of the nations. And the healing of those nations are those that God has chosen out of every nation. Kindred, tongue, and people. And we come over to verse 14 as well. In this 22nd chapter, Revelation 22:14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. This book that has told us that there shall... The last verse of chapter 21, if you want to know where I'm quoting from. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have ever told a lie, then you're in Revelation 21:27 along with me. But since we've all told lies, then we're in Revelation 21. How do we get into Revelation 22? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you know that you're in that number that will have a right to the tree of life? By keeping God's commandments. This is the message of the Bible throughout the New Testament. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's why verse 14 doesn't sound very Arminian. Blessed are they that do His commandments. That is the evidence of eternal life. It's not inviting Jesus into your heart or accepting Him as your personal Savior. It's keeping God's commandments. That is the evidence of eternal life, but my point is not the evidence. My point is the tree of life is in heaven, and it bears fruit, and we have a right to it, and we can lay hold of that privilege and show the evidence of it by keeping God's commandments. Something has happened between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22. The Lord Jesus Christ defeated death. We are a cursed race. Except for Jesus Christ has lifted that curse. You transport them all over the place, don't you, brother? They look horrible, don't they, brother? I know we don't tell them that. And we're kind to them. And we think the best of them, but they look horrible. Some of you that are taking rotations through nursing homes, they look horrible. You tell me about them. You show up to work the next day and they're gone. You have to bathe them. Give them sponge baths. They look horrible because death is terrible. Death is a curse. Death is a judgment because we sinned against God. It's an appropriate judgment. We're born dead spiritually. We'll die physically. And then the second death, which we could call the third death, is when we are cast into the lake of fire. But because your body is cast in the lake of fire, it's called the second death. But we're born spiritually dead as well. Death, death, and more death. 
because of our sins. But Jesus has destroyed that. He has destroyed the claim of all three deaths. Number one, we're regenerated by being quickened, which means to give us life spiritually so that we're no longer dead spiritually. Second, when we die and our bodies are put in the cemetery, they are only sleeping there. And third, the second death has no power over them that are involved in the first resurrection. Amen! That is victory in Jesus. And we better sing that before the day's over. Hint, hint. 421 Burgundy, if you need encouragement. (coughs) Victory in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. For the wages of sin is death. And he's good. This, the Lord always pays his wages. We're going there. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not because you're an overcomer that you get the gift. It's not because you keep His commandments that you get the gift. It is a gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's by the obedience of one that we have been delivered from the reigning King of death. And so we have 1 Corinthians 15.54, which we've already been to. and We don't want to retrace that ground, though we'd love to. When this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. We used to say about one football team dominating another football team, they ate them for breakfast. Death will be swallowed up in victory because the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed it and destroyed it easily and simply, though it did take His life. But He laid down His life willingly and He took His life up again willingly. He destroyed it. And this is what we rejoice in. And we come into the house of God and we hear secrets of mysteries kept hidden from the foundation of the world that are revealed through the Word of God that the vast majority of the human race has not known about. It is unbelievable. Not only are we the recipients of this drama, we're told about it. And He's put a love for it in our hearts. There was a time when I heard verses like this read and I was daydreaming sitting in the pew. Daydreaming about girls, daydreaming about sports, daydreaming about motorcycles, daydreaming about cars. Thank you, God, for saving my soul against my free will. Which I didn't have anyways, you will understand. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. The tree of life. I can't wait. Which month are you going to eat? Amen, brother. Brother, double brother. Eat all twelve of those fruits. Rub those leaves on your wounds, brethren. It's for the healing of the nations. And you know who the nations are? If you don't understand how to read the Bible, the United States of America, because we were not part of the Commonwealth of Israel. It's for the healing of the United States of America. You were born outside the Commonwealth of Israel. You were without God and without, I need a four letter word that starts with, without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Amen. For the healing of the nations. I've been healed, brethren, and I don't care about being healed from that C thing. I care about being healed from that D thing. Not cancer, death. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Look Look at Job 18 with me. Job 18. This is del- this is deliverance message. You know, there's deliverance preaching, but this is deliverance. Jesus Christ has won a deliverance for us Amen. from death and its claims and its effects, and death because of its pain and trouble and finality has controlled men for six thousand years. I want to read just briefly in Job 18, though the whole chapter is quite metaphorical and quite descriptive and quite figurative. In, in beautiful language, describing how terrible death is. But let's get one verse. Verse 14. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle. And it shall bring him 
to the king of terrors. Job 18.14 His confidence. Men live so confidently. They pound their chest. They get so excited when they're strong and in good health. But then God takes it away and He roots their confidence out of their tabernacle. There is no confidence left in their body. There is no confidence left in their homes. There's no confidence left in their business. They have to have a successor plan in place in order to put a new new CEO in charge of the company because they can no longer run it. All their confidence is gone. And it shall bring him to the king of terrors. Do you know who the king of terrors is? It's death. Death is king. Because it reigns, according to Romans 5, repeated over and over and over. Death reigns. It is in charge. It's in control. We cannot fight it. We cannot oppose it. We cannot avoid it. Death reigns. It's the king of terrors. Look at Hebrews 2.15 and what that brings to pass. Hebrews chapter 2. Their confidence is rooted out. Little boys will, will shinny up skinny trees because they have no fear of heights. Young men will jump out of airplanes and not pull the ripcord on a parachute until they're nearing the ground because they're full of confidence. A few years later, they won't go up a two-foot stepladder. He roots the confidence out of us. Well, I can't preach Ecclesiastes 12 to you today. But you know what is described there in the first eight verses about the decay of the human body because death is constantly clutching on us and clawing at us and taking us and taking us until it drags us down into the grave because we chose death over life. We chose the devil over God. We chose a woman over the living God of heaven and earth. Adam should have told Eve, Get away from me, you fool! What did you touch that tree for? Adam should have, Adam should have called on the God of heaven to have protected his wife from the devil. Adam should have done a lot of things. Adam should have run out of the trees of the Garden of Eden and grabbed a hold of God and begged for mercy and forgiveness. But he didn't do any of those things and it's all by God's plan. Don't think I'm trying to rewrite Genesis. God wrote it the best way it could possibly ever be written. Because he shows us just how corrupt we are. And it's been more than one man that's followed a woman against God. Hebrews 2.15. Let's get verse 14. For as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself, Jesus Christ our Lord, likewise took part of the same, that through death He might destroy Him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. How did the devil have the power of death? Not because the devil has power even close to that of God. It's because the devil got our first parents to break a commandment of God. That is the only way he has the power of death. The power of death is God said, Thou shalt surely die. If the devil got our first parents to do what God had said was the condition to surely die, then the devil had the power of death over us. Because he had got God's just claims of death upon us because of the sin of our first parents. But Jesus Christ came to destroy that. He destroyed the power of the devil and death. The claim of sin that was against us. But the point I want is in verse 15, Jesus Christ came not only to destroy the devil who had the power of death over us, and to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's the fear of this king of terrors that has led to so much religious bondage. Including the Old Testament. The Old Testament was offering animal sacrifices, killing, 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 to shed blood over and over again because of the fear of death. Wanting to pay for sins, but those sacrifices could never make a man's conscience clean as if he was going to live. Look at the Roman Catholic Church and its seven sacraments. And it's because of the fear of death. I have watched widows thumbing thumbing their rosaries while sitting in a mass. They're trying to do as much as they can in order to get their husband out of 
purgatory or save themselves from hell. It's the, it's the fear of death that brings men into bondage. We have suicide bombers that strap belts on them with C4 because they think they're going to get to heaven where Allah is by blowing themselves to smithereens. There were foolish Japanese teenagers that would suck down a little sake and put on a little bayon, a, 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 a little, a little handkerchief, worship the emperor and think that they were going to go to heaven if they dove their airplane, their cheap little piece of junk airplane into one of our aircraft carriers. Through fear of death, they were willing to do that. Now, isn't that wonderful? I'm going to kill myself because I'm afraid of dying. Think on it for a while. I'm going to kill myself because I'm afraid of dying, and I want to go to heaven, where I get my palm trees, so that that sun that shines so hot in Saudi Arabia won't give me sunburn anymore. Do you know what we get to do? We get to live for Him who died for us. What a different religion. What a different religion. The religions of the Old Testament, you had to offer your children in sacrifice to God. You had to kill your own children in order to have some claim on life. Unbelievable. That is the devil. That is a devilish religion. That is bondage. Where you think you have to kill your own offspring in order to have eternal life? Lord, thank you that you sent your Son to die for us that we might live so that we don't have to live like Philistines killing our own sons. Never has there been a religion like Christianity. There is no comparison. All the rest of them have gods that cannot move, see, hear, smell, speak. And so are they that worship them, and so are they that make them. The Bible says all of those things. It is not our arrogance. It is our love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from fear of death and the bondage it creates. Look at Luke 12. Let's think about different aspects of death. Luke 12. Brethren, Luke 12 is your folly in life being exposed. Death is an exposer. Have you wasted your life in gathering up things you can't take with you? Luke 12, verse 16. Jesus spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Will you think for a minute with me that death is an exposer of your life? If you have put all your life into building barns and putting up stuff so that you can say, Soul, you have retirement before you. Enjoy golf every day while you're earning the interest off your huge investment portfolio. Soul, you've got goods laid up for many years, but the fact is he didn't live another 24 hours. Because God said, thou fool. And God will say that to every single one of us, even his children, when he has to cut us off early because we get too entangled in the affairs of this life. When we worry too much about the things of this life. When we worry about investments, business, family, children, and grandchildren, those are not the reasons you are alive. The reasons you are alive is the glory of God and Jesus Christ, His Son. Do not let anything steal your heart, or death becomes an expose that you wasted your life. Because your business is no longer going to have your name attached to it. Your family is no longer going to have you around. Your riches will no longer be reported under your social security number. It's gone, gone, gone. And it's exposed by death. But do you know what? For a child of God that's a believer, he gets something exposed at death. 
He gets his hope exposed at death. He gets heaven exposed to him. He gets the Lord exposed to him. His life takes a huge leap upward at death. His life is fulfilled at death. As Paul would say, I'm far better off now than I was yesterday when he died one night. Because it is far better to depart and to be with Christ. What a wonderful difference that the gospel makes. And the gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to make a difference between us and the wicked in the great drama of life. Death is the horrible king of terrors. It brings us into fear. It exposes our lives. Death is working on you and clutching at you right now, brethren. You know I've told you these things before. I want you to think about them. Death is a happy, lively, gorgeous girl turning into a cold, ashen gray, and shriveled old woman. Do you know what? If your heart's in the right place, you can glory in that fact. Look at my body decay. My body's decaying because of death, but my spirit is not being touched and it's going to be with the Lord instantly when I leave this body. And I will never see this ugly body again because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to change it and give me a brand new one. We get too wrapped up in this body. No wonder we have a verse that says this, bodily exercise profiteth little because you're not going to stop being cold, gray, wrinkled, ugly. I'm sorry, old people. It's not your golden years. I'm sorry. I don't mean it against anyone. I'm, I'm, I'm rapidly joining the crowd. Doesn't matter. But you know what? Every, that's why it says it profits little. First Timothy 4.8. Bodily exercise profiteth little. But you know what it then says? Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Amen. Godliness is what we want to work at. Godliness is what we want to exercise at. That's what the previous verse says, 1 Timothy 4, 7. But exercise thyself rather unto godliness. That is the exercise we need. Right. What kind of exercise is godliness? Reading your Bible, prayer, encouraging the brethren, walking with God, delighting in Him, singing His praise. Those are spiritual exercises that build up your godliness. It's taking up the shield of faith that builds up your godliness. Then you can laugh at your body. Ha, ha. You're going into the grave. I can't wait to plant you, you ugly seed. Because, because God's going to bring a beautiful plant up. As 1 Corinthians 15 told us. It is only by considering the Word of God. It is only by encouraging ourselves by faith. And it is only by the power of the Holy Ghost that we can say these things sincerely and mean them. Because it's the king of terrors. And people don't like it. Death is a strong, virile, handsome, young man changing into a bag of yellow skin stretched over a few misshapen bones. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? You've seen it. Death is working right now while we sit here to choke out our lives and leave us a rotting, stinking corpse. Death is consuming and devouring us right now. It's sucking the memory out of your brain. You've heard, I've said these before. I want you to think about them right now. Death is sucking the memory out of your brain, the sight out of your eyes, the hearing out of your ears, the teeth out of your mouth, the taste out of your tongue, the moisture out of your mouth, the elasticity and clarity out of your skin, the firmness out of your flesh, the hormones out of your body, the form out of your shape, the strength out of your bones, the power out of your muscles, the flexibility out of your joints, the color and shine out of your hair, the hair off your head, the brightness out of your eyes, the desire and ability out of your sex, the insulin out of your pancreas, the processing out of your kidneys, the courage out of your mind, the remaining beats out of your heart, and the life out of your soul. That's what it's doing. Amen. It's the king of terrors. But thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It doesn't need to be the king of terrors to us. In fact, I know a group of people that are so crazy from the gospel that they sing a song, How Sweet to Die. Amen. They're that crazy. 
how sweet to die. Amen. Have you met them? Yes. If you were to keep reading in the book of Genesis and move over to Genesis chapter 5, death is all around. Adam died the day he ate thereof. He died 930 years later. Abel was killed by Cain. But we come to Genesis chapter 5 we run into a man named Enoch. What in the world happened to Enoch? Enoch didn't die. He was walking with God 365 years and the Lord took him. Amen. He just went right out of the... Where in the world did that power come from? Why isn't this found in world history? Why don't they put this in world history? Enoch. He didn't die. He went straight to heaven. Why? Because he had this testimony that he pleased God. Amen. That's Hebrews 11.5. You know Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is what Enoch did, and that is what you can do. And that is how you can walk with God. And even if God takes these bodies, and we get the C or the H, cancer or a heart attack, and these bodies are put in the grave. The moment that we are spirit is absent from the body, it is present with the Lord. Amen. You know why the Lord did that to Enoch? So that we'd have someone to talk about. Because he's in Genesis 5 and he's in Hebrews 11. He's in Jude. Because God has the power over death. Remember? I kill and I make alive. Amen. And here is the mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I show you a mystery. Look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We just want to look at this library that God's given us and pull pull down its volumes and see what it says about death. Because it tells us that Jesus Christ has won the victory over death because God sent His Son to die for us that we might live through Him. That is the gospel message. I took a little walk this morning with two little girls who don't even know what death is. And I told them that the gospel means good news. That the word gospel that they hear means good news. And the good news is God sent His Son so that even if we die, we're going to be immediately with the Lord in heaven. Aren't we? Exodus chapter 3. What does this verse mean to you about death? Who's, this is Exodus 3. Moses is at the burning bush. The Lord Jehovah is speaking to him through the angel of the Lord in a burning bush. Verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Brother, we don't need to be afraid to look upon God. Haven't we learned recently, a few months ago, that we ought to come boldly to the throne of grace? What does this verse mean to you about death? Now, if you didn't have the New Testament, it wouldn't mean too much, would it? Unless you were really sharp and the Lord had opened your understanding. I am the God of Abraham. Who is God speaking to? Moses. What was the difference between the promise to Abraham and the covenant that God made with Moses according to the book of Galatians? 430 years. 430 years after Abraham, God says to Moses, 430 years later, I am the God of Abraham. Do you believe that present tense verb? Do you know someone else that believed that present tense verb enough to argue from it? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 22 put the Sadducees on their backsides with this passage? They came to Him and asked the question about the, the woman who had seven husbands. And he shut them up and said, you don't know anything about heaven. If you read the Scriptures, you wouldn't be so confused. But there is no marriage in heaven. But let me say something to you. Have you ever read your Bibles? Have you ever read Exodus 3, 6, where God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Now you Sadducees, even you know that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For him to use a present tense verb relative to Abraham 400 years after he lived... Abraham must still be alive somewhere. So you're wrong, Sadducees. There is a resurrection from the dead, and there is a spirit existence apart from the body, which they denied both. 
Can you believe what heresies came up in the people of God? Do you love Exodus 3.6? I want you to learn to love it. Jesus Christ loved it. The Sadducees didn't like it. Do you know what a Sadducee had to do with Exodus 3.6 after Jesus Christ preached for about five minutes? He either had to hand in his resignation to the Sadducees or he, be, he defied the word of God. Right. It's that simple. I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. Right. I have been the God of Abraham. No, no, no. I am the God of Abraham. Thank you, Lord. Hey, come over to Numbers 23. Did any of you who read, I hope that some of you who read John 11 last night enjoyed the last ten verses of that chapter as well, where Caiaphas gave a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ that he really didn't know what he was saying. Caiaphas, just a few days later, would condemn the Lord Jesus Christ to death. But he gave a prophecy for political expediency. Don't you know that if we kill one man, then we can save the nation? He didn't know that his words were being, should be understood spiritually, that Jesus Christ died a substitutionary death for his elect. Right. His elect among the Jews and his elect that were scattered abroad. Do you know who that is? Us. <laughs> Someone asked me this morning, tell me something to the glory of God. But then the glory, glory in the Lord. Give me something from John 11 to the glory of God. I said, I love the fact that God can take his enemies and get a prophecy out of them about his spiritual workings in the gospel. Did you all understand that when you read the prophecy of Caiaphas? He didn't know what he was saying. But we know what he was saying. And the Holy Spirit wanted it recorded so that we know what God could get of the mouth of his enemies. Well, I've got another one here in Numbers 23 that you should know about. This enemy is Balaam. The prophet for hire. Numbers chapter 23, he, he's getting up and he's just about to ungo, let go with his curse on Israel. Balak, the king of Moab, has hired him for a costly amount of money to curse Israel. And so here's Balaam up there and he's about to open his mouth and let go with his curse on Israel. We'll start at 10 so we can save time. It's, it's, the, the, there's chapters here that are worth reading. The whole Bible's worth reading, of course. But verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? And the number of the fourth part of Israel. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Exclamation point. Amen. Balaam didn't get the last end like Israel. But he was wishing for it because God was controlling his mouth and God was blessing Israel. Who can count the dust of Jacob? Jacob is so numerous. Israel is so numerous. They're like the dust of the earth. It's even impossible to count a quarter of them. And oh, that I could die his death, the death of the righteous. This is God taking another Caiaphas of the Old Testament and opening his mouth to say wonderful things about Israel. What did Balaam, how did Balaam retire? Balaam retired after his inability to curse Israel by teaching the Moabites to send their daughters into the camp of the Israelites to, to, to commit whoredom with them and to destroy them that way. And God killed them in a battle. Right. Turn to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You mean that death that's sucking the insulin out of your pancreas? I mean, no offense. Death that's sucking the memory out of our brains? That death? That death that's corrupting us? That death that's destroying us? The king of terrors? It can be precious? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. What is a saint? A sanctified person. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be living a holy life. If you live a holy life, then you're one of God's saints, and it's precious when you die. He's going to protect you every bit of the way. He's going to send you personal transportation. What two people in the Bible do you know got the personal transportation where it is specifically identified as a chariot of God with angels? Elijah. Elisha saw that chariot come down and get him. Lazarus. The angels came and carried him into Abraham's bosom. You say, well, where was the chariot? 
you just read Elijah and you compare Scripture with Scripture. They bring a chariot to put you in. They know you can't fly. Praise God. Precious. In the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. When He looks at our bodies getting worse and worse. You know, I complain because I'm 5'9". One of these days I'm going to be 4'9". I won't be tall enough to make the kindergarten basketball team. Because the Lord's going to just destroy this body. But do you know what he says? Precious in the sight of the Lord. When it gets weaker and weaker till where I can't even get my lungs open, my diaphragm won't even suck oxygen in, and my heart just stops beating. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because he has transportation right there in that room with them that will carry them into his presence. He'll change the body. He has the spirit. All is good. All is precious. We have hope, brethren. We have so much hope in the gospel. Look at Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 32. The wicked is driven away... In his wickedness. That verse could be compared to Job 18.14 about confidence being rooted out of his tabernacle and him being taken to the king of terrors. The wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. The righteous doesn't have hope in the wicked's death. The righteous has hope in his own death, brethren. The wicked is driven away in his wickedness. When the wicked is driven out of this world and taken hold of by the king of terrors, he appears before God and he is still wicked. When the righteous are taken out of this world, they have hope in their death because when they appear before God, the passages we've read from Psalm 17, Psalm 49, Psalm 73, I'll appear before Him in righteousness. There's hope in our death. How do you know that you have the righteousness of God clothing you? Keep His commandments. Lay hold of eternal life. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Believe on Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to where it changes your life. That is the evidence. That isn't the condition. That's the evidence. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't change your life, you don't have the evidence yet. There were lots of believers in Jesus' day. All he had to do was poke them a little bit, and pretty soon he would tell them that they were the children of the devil. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 44. It's belief on Jesus Christ that changes your life. Look at the hope that is in the death of a believer. We've already been to Isaiah where it tells us, That when the righteous die, they go to heaven and they get to go to their beds and rest. Remember? Can't go there again. We don't have time. But I want you to uh, think about Deuteronomy 31.16. Deuteronomy 31. I want to make sure that you understand that a New Testament expression is not exclusively in the New Testament about death. And that is that death to a believer, death to a saint, death to one of God's children is just going to sleep bodily. It's just your body going to sleep. Amen. Do you know what Jesus would, Jesus would do when he'd come to a funeral where they were making too big of a, of a hoopla around the person that had died? I'm talking about the daughter of Jairus. What is all this noise for? She's just asleep. And they mocked him to scorn. What do you do when you hear those words? Yes, Lord! Yes, Lord! I kill and I make alive. Yes, Lord! Of course we grieve. Even Jesus could weep with his brother Lazarus dead, his good friend Lazarus. But to make too big of a hoopla over mourning and wailing and crying... She's just sleeping. You say, where'd that, where'd that expression start? Look at this. Deuteronomy 31. It's time for Moses to die. And the Lord, Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. This ain't the New Testament, is it? This is pretty far back. This is Deuteronomy. Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they go to be among them and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. But what we want is the first part of the verse, Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. Look at 1 Kings 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. I once shared with you a number of years ago 
a letter written by a wife to her husband who was in prison for the gospel's sake about 300 years ago who was about to go to death. And what fantastic letter she wrote him. I hope that some of you remember. I see a few nodding heads. Fantastic letter. That wife wrote him to encourage him to die. And to die full of faith. This isn't as good, but it's how a wife should address her husband when he's about to die. First Kings chapter 1, this is Bathsheba speaking to her husband David the king. Verse 21. Otherwise, First Kings one twenty one. Otherwise it shall come to pass, when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. Bathsheba knew the hope of the resurrection. Bathsheba understood what happens when a person dies. His body goes to sleep and his spirit goes to be with the Lord. What did David say about his little boy that died? I can't bring him back, but I can go to him. (laughs) That is the hope they've had when they only had the Old Testament. And we've got the new. And do you know how many times it tells us that in the New Testament? When Stephen finally had the last stone hit his body that drove the spirit out of his body, what does it say? He fell asleep. He fell asleep. It looks like it, sort of, doesn't it? When you've got the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, look at Genesis 15. Genesis 15, death is just the body going to sleep. You know there are people that, call, that have, believe in a doctrine called soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, soul sleep. That when you die, you go out of existence, and it's some future event in their prophetic scheme the Lord's going to bring. No, you don't. Your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Your spirit doesn't sleep. When the Bible talks about you sleeping, it's your body. Right. It's your body that's sleeping down on the ground. You know, we put you in a nice bed... They usually have satin pillows and we make it as comfortable as possible. We put a lid over it so the worms won't bother you too fast. And we put you down there and you can sleep. You're laid there so nicely, pillow under the head, hair done up. Climate control in some cases. That's what's sleeping. We don't believe in the doctrine of soul sleep. Don't ever let anybody tell you about soul sleep. They're so confused when they read the Bible because they read about somebody sleeping, but it's only the body that sleeps. The Spirit's in heaven. Right. Stephen said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What? Right. He didn't say, Lord Jesus, anesthetize my spirit. He said, receive my spirit. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Right. He told the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not to be in annihilation or in some foggy place in the universe where, you're ne- where you don't exist. That's soul sleep. We don't believe that. I just gave you some reasons why we don't believe it. Let me tell, let me tell you something else. You've, some of you know this already, but this is a, I, I love this. You know how else death is described? Did you, re- did you notice that when it was called sleep, it, it said, sleep with thy fathers. Sleep with thy fathers. Sleep with thy fathers. Now, sleep with thy fathers, since sleep is body, you're going to be buried like your fathers were. But what about the spirit? Well, there's another expression in the Bible that helps us tie them both together. Did you know that when you die, it's a real family reunion? There's no KFC, but it's a real family reunion of the elect in your family. Genesis 15:5 God brings Abraham out he brought him forth abroad and said look now toward heaven It's not 15:5 I want I want Genesis 15:15 15:15 15, 15. 15, 15. sorry about that God is speaking to Abraham thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace His body's going to go on the ground where his fathers bodies are Thou shalt be buried in a good old age But he's also going to go to his fathers in spirit. Let's just keep reading about these occurrences in the Bible. Chapter 25. What is what is the real you? Is the real now? Now this that's that's a hard question because we're three part beings. 
But the per- there's a part that can exist without the body. The body can't exist without the spirit because it corrupts and, and dissolves. But you can exist without your body because Paul talked about being clothed upon with this earthly tabernacle and putting it off, it being dissolved, and getting a new tabernacle for his spirit. Here in Genesis 25 and verse 8, let's read more about this family reunion. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, that when he comes, he's going to gather together all of us. In John chapter 11, it was Jesus was going to gather together all that are scattered abroad. That's gathering their spirits together and taking them to heaven because that's where the spirits of just men are. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us, that in heaven are the spirits of just men. Death is our spirit being gathered together and taken up to heaven. Gathered together with his father. Abraham wasn't buried along with his dead relatives. They didn't take him back to Ur of the Chaldeans, look up a mausoleum there and put Abraham in beside his daddy. Abraham went to be in heaven with Shem, the son of Noah, his fathers and Noah, and the fathers that went before him. There's a whole string of these references. Look at chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. See, David knew he was going to go to his son. He knew his son couldn't come back to him. And there was no comfort whatsoever in going to be in a casket next to his, his little son's grave. Genesis chapter 35, verse 29. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. His spirit was gathered to his people. Who were his people? Abraham, Shem, Noah, Enoch, Seth. Gathered to his fathers. Death is a family reunion because all of our spirit, the spirits of just men, are in heaven. Are you able to commend your spirit to God before the hour of death? Look at Second Timothy chapter 1. There are many, many more things that could be said. Maybe they should be said. We'll say them at some time. But let's bring this to a close this morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is a verse that we sing. Do you understand it? And do you believe it? And do you practice it in your heart? Have you been totally delivered from the bondage of the fear of death? 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ about life and immortality. That's in verses 10 and 11. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless... I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul had committed his soul and spirit and body into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was persuaded that, that Jesus Christ was able to keep that which he had committed to him against that great day of judgment that was coming. He would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I pray God, your whole body and your spirit and your soul be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had committed everything to the Lord Jesus Christ and he was persuaded. How about Peter? Did Peter have as much confidence as Paul? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Paul would say to live as Christ and to die is gain. Two verses later, he would say, it is far better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here. Paul had already been to the third heaven and come back. He knew a little bit about what he was talking about. And he said, it's far better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Wherefore, let them that suffer, just like Paul did, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, Commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Is this how you think? Have you and do you commit the keeping of your souls unto God in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator? Do you know how we have the assurance? By suffering according to the will of God and by doing the will of God. You know, if you're suffering because you're sinful... That's no evidence 
that you have a faithful creator that's going to take care of you. But it is evidence if you're suffering according to the will of God. Brethren, your death is but a planting of a seed. It's going to Abraham's bosom. Do you know what Abraham was able to tell the rich man? Now You lived your life luxuriously. Now Lazarus is comforted. Comforted. Even a poor beggar gets comforted. It's the use of the keys of the Lord Jesus Christ. The dominion of death has been overthrown. It's gain. And so Paul, when he comes to Romans chapter 8, and he wants to wrap up that wonderful chapter of Romans chapter 8, when he wants to describe the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and he creates a long list of things that we might be tempted to think, could separate us from the love of God, what does he start with? Death. For I am persuaded that neither death shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Paul, do you know why he counted all things but lost for the knowledge of Jesus Christ? That I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not to earn it, but to lay hold of it, and to be sure of it, and to have confidence of it, and to prove that he was one of, that he was God's child. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. That I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Remember what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about the resurrection? He said, therefore, whether present or absent, we labor to be accepted of him. That's how the effect this ought to have on us. And the second assembly, in the short sermon we're going to have in the second assembly, that's all we're going to consider, is the hope of the resurrection and the effect that it should have on us. It should change our lives. Simeon said, as he held the baby Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, Lord, now let your servant depart, for I have seen thy salvation. Well, so have we. We have seen him with the eyes of faith in the word of God. We, we know more about him than, Stephen, than, than Simeon did at that moment that he said that. All he knew is that that child, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was God's son. And we know what God's son has done for us. We have seen the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Now let thy servant depart. I have seen thy salvation. We've seen God's salvation to the pages of Scripture. Now let thy servant depart. Because it's far better to depart. I close with these words of Jesus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.